today is going to be the third Sunday where we're looking at the seven churches in Revelation. If you remember, two weeks ago, if you were here, we had a bit of a general introduction about what was going on and who, who John was and who the churches were. Then last week, when Nick was speaking, we thought about Ephesus and uh, thought about that church and what the message was. And the main word of that message, that letter, was repent. That's not such an easy word to hear sometimes, isn't it? Because we kind of shy away from anything that might mean change or something that's tricky. But that was the word last week. You might be pleased to know today is very different. But it's very different for a very different reason as well. A lot of people, like we were saying a couple of weeks ago, might sort of think that Revelation isn't such a good book to read. Most of it seems quite bizarre and symbolic and tricky to understand. But as we've been saying over these last two weeks and today as well, we're only concentrating on the first three chapters in this series. And the thing about that is they're too easy to understand, but sometimes very difficult to put into practice. It's easy what God says. It's very clear. Repent, do this, do that. It's great what you're doing already, but why don't you do this? And that may be what God says to us today as well. We're thinking about the church of Smyrna. So we'll be reading the section from chapter 2 in a few minutes. But what I try and imagine is that John had written this with God inspiring him to write it all down. And then there's this other person that took the manuscript and then he kind of went. Because it's an island, isn't it? So he didn't just sort of... uh, just go on his horse or his pony or just walk. But he had to get on a boat. So he went, I was imagining this week him getting on a jetty with this important manuscript in his bag and thinking, yeah, maybe he had a sneaky look at it. What do you think? If you sort of had uh, some uh, important uh, message from someone who was important as well, would you take a sneaky look and just think, oh, what's God going to say to me in it? That might be something I'd perhaps do, being inquisitive. But there he was, taking the message that John had given. And of course, John knew that the church around him was really suffering. They're in trouble. They're having hardships because life was really awkward, horrible. They're being persecuted. And we'll be thinking about that a lot more today as well. John, just to remind you, was on Patmos. So in a way, it's a bit like Alcatraz in that it was a penal colony somewhere where it was prison, and they had to lose their freedom. Although, of course, Patmos is far bigger than Alcatraz. Uh, I think it's 13 square miles that Patmos is, and that's nine miles from the most northerly point to the most southerly point. Patmos is in the Aegean, and so when he was writing to all these churches, as you can see there, Patmos is the red arrow, then he was writing to all these other churches, but especially today we're thinking about that church, that real church in Smyrna. And with only four verses, the letter to Smyrna was the shortest letter. But let's just read it. As you know, it's going to be Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn to it, or you can just have a listen if you want to. That'll be fine. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. 
I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here's a few quick things about Smyrna itself. So Smyrna still exists, but we just call it a different name. When um, Nick was talking last week, he was saying, well, there is an Ephesus, and maybe you've been, but it's in ruins. So there's no one really living there anymore. There's this great big library, I think there is, and an amphitheatre, but lots of ruins. No one's living there. But Smyrna still exists, but we call it Izmir, and it's the third city of Turkey after Ankara and Istanbul. It's a port city, again, like Ephesus. Uh, And because of that, there's lots of prosperity in the city. So they're having a good time in their lives. Uh, Plenty of Jews there. And the name Smyrna is a Greek word which means myrrh. And you probably remember that that's one of the gifts that the three Magi took to the baby Jesus and to Mary and Joseph not long after Jesus was born. And it's sort of suggesting suffering, pain, bitterness. And when Jesus had died after his crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they both came and took some myrrh and some other herbs and things just to anoint his body. So the myrrh was talking about a time of horribleness, suffering, pain, And so you can imagine the church that was in the city of pain and suffering, that's what it was known for, that was what its main export was. The church there was almost taken on what was happening in the city, what the city was named named after. It was a city of suffering, but it was a church that really was suffering. The people that were there, they really wanted to be friendly with the Jews, friendly with the Romans who were in charge. And the Romans at that time, of course, the emperor wanted to be known as God and Lord. And so you had to say, Caesar is Lord. That was a bit of a predicament, was it? If you're a Christian in Smyrna, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was so clear-cut, so easy, that say, Jesus is Lord, no one else is. That it was just so easy for them to know that, yeah, it doesn't matter what happens to me. Whatever the Romans do to me, it doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. I'm never going to say or acknowledge or even think that uh, Caesar is Lord. And also the Jews were very hostile. That's why it calls them the synagogue of Satan, because they wanted to be in with the Romans. And so they were really hostile to what the Christians were doing. It was a young church, obviously, because all the churches were young then, weren't they? They were sort of 50 years old, 60 years old at the oldest. But like we're saying, Smyrna still exists. So Christians are still living in that city. And what was the main message then that we read just a few minutes ago from chapter 2? What's the main message to the Christians in Smyrna? 
I know you like the next slide. I, I see your eyes light up when I put things on like this. Revelation 2.9. Everyone's eyes are lighting up. It's brilliant when that happens, isn't it? Let's have a think about it. So we've got all this double Greek on the top. And we're going to separate these three words that are the most important. So Ida, the first word. We're going to think about what that means. And then these other two words as well, which are really important, just to get what the real meaning is. Ida. Seeing, that becomes knowing, being aware of, appreciating. So if I was reading it in English again, I know your afflictions and your poverty. So what Jesus was saying through John and writing to the church in Smyrna was not just, I know about it, it's just an intellectual thing, but I'm really aware of it. I'm with you. I can see that what you're doing, going through, is really hard. It's really tricky. I'm aware of it. I know it. It's really important to me as well. The next word, then, we're thinking of in my NIV, it says afflictions. But if you just look in a lexicon, it just sort of says so much more about it. It's a pressure, what constricts or rubs together, used of a narrow place that hems someone in. The challenge of coping with the eternal pressure of a tribulation, especially when feeling there is no way of escape. I'm so glad there's four people on the front row. I've just thought of this. Can you stand up, please? This is why some people sit on the back row, isn't it? Now, if you are just... I'm, I'm stood here... And can you just hem me in, please? What? Hem me in. So you're going to stand around me. I think I can get out yet. Can I? So can you hem me in? Can you some, come a bit closer? How about linking arms or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to get out. Oh, what am I going to do? This is the word. This is the word. Oh, help me. This is, I'm under pressure. I'm hemmed in. Thank you very much. Round of applause for our volunteers. Can you understand it? You're hemmed in. You can't get out. You want to, you want a breakthrough, but you need Superman or someone to come and do something amazing. You're hemmed in. You're just, there's pressure. You can't get out. You're constricted. Jesus is saying, I know about that. You're hemmed in. I love you. I can see what's going on. How about the next word? Another exciting word. Poverty, beggary, destitution. In the NIV again, it just says poverty. And we think about that word and you say, yeah, okay, there's people that are poor. But he's saying something stronger, something bigger than that. He's saying they've got nothing. They've really got nothing. They've got to go out and beg because they have nothing. But what is Jesus saying? I know, I perceive, I understand, I appreciate that things aren't just bad. They're terrible for you. Things are awful. So all of these words, Jesus is saying, yes, I can understand what's going on. I can see your predicament, your awful situation. But Jesus doesn't just say that, does he? He does something about it. Because in all our situations, God knows how we're feeling today. But he, does, he doesn't just say, oh, go on, it'll be all right. He comes alongside us, doesn't he? 
you might remember that after the 12 disciples died, then there were some other ladies and gentlemen that God raised up and were in the second and the third centuries that kind of inspired the church and led the church. I'm going to read some of their names out. You'll probably make a mental note of them and think, oh yeah, I've heard of him or whoever. Clement of Rome. I'm not going to ask you where they come from because often I'll say where they're coming from, so it's quite obvious. Clement of Rome. Ignatius of Antioch. Justin Martyr. Irenaeus of Leons. Clement of Alexandria. Origen of Alexandria and Tertullian. All these were really important people after the 12 disciples had died, they were the people that led the church and sort of made, sort of, they wrote things down and we've still got examples of their writings. But there was another chap as well. I'm not going to say his name just yet. Does anyone want to tell me what was another important person that was a church father in sort of the early second century? Shall I give you a clue? Oh, I think I heard a, a P. Polycarp, yeah, the clue was going to be his name in Greek means much fruit, because that would have got it for everybody then, wouldn't it? Much fruit, Polycarp. But Polycarp was from Smyrna. Let's have a look at his photo. Well, his engraving. We don't know if this was what he really looked like. It might have been, mightn't it? But this was Polycarp, and he was one of John's disciples, John the Apostle, who wrote Revelation, because he didn't stay on Patmos to the end, as Nick was saying last, last week. After he came off the island, he probably went to Ephesus, and there was people like Polycarp, who were his, his disciples. And you sort of think, wow, how incredible that would have been, because I try to imagine all the stories that John would have known, because he was there, that aren't in the Gospels. It tells us that at the end of John, doesn't it? That if, all the, if I could write loads more books and perhaps the world could be full of stories about what Jesus did. So I bet John would have said some of these stories to Polycarp. How amazing to, to have that. But what happened to Polycarp? A few years after uh, John had written this letter to them, he was martyred. And it wasn't just any kind of martyr in, in a way. Because he was about 86 or so when it happened. And so sort of an older man. But he didn't want to be, uh, he was, all the Jews were bringing wood for the fire. But he didn't want to be strapped up because he just wanted to free to praise God still. And then when they could see that he was really tranquil, like they'd set fire to all the wood and he was there in the flames. But he was tranquil. He, He was just at peace, he was relaxed. The people there were shocked. And so what someone did, they got a knife and they stabbed him. And they made sure he was dead because he wasn't dying quick enough. He wasn't, he wasn't showing pain. He wasn't showing sort of like he was sorry for what, was, what he was sort of believing. And so Polycarp died this terrible death in a way because he wouldn't say, Caesar is Lord, even at the end, when he was being uh, in court, when he was being judged, and the person in charge said, if you say Caesar is Lord, great, we won't uh, hurt you, because we know you're a good chap, and you're doing good things in the city, but even then, he was saying, I've lived for 86 years, I'm not going to say that Jesus isn't my Lord, he's doing good to me, how can I deny Jesus now? And so, that's what he was like, he served God for Many years, 
And yet, even at the end, he wasn't even going to say, no, I can't say Jesus isn't my Lord anymore. He, right to the end, he said, yes, I'm nailing my sort of flag to the mast. I'm saying Jesus is my Lord. We've been thinking then about the suffering church. It didn't just last in Smyrna at that time, but for decades. And we know that Polycarp, one of the leaders of the church, he was martyred. So the suffering continued. It wasn't just a short thing. Jesus was comforting his church. Jesus was saying, I love you. I can see the trouble you're having. Jesus was saying, I love you. You're suffering. And it's not just going to be over in a short while. But for a long while, you're going to be suffering. But I'm with you. I wonder if the seven churches knew that this messenger was coming. I wonder if, or was it a surprise when this messenger turned up at each of the churches with the book of Revelation, as we call it now, and a letter of encouragement to all the churches? I wonder, were they expecting it? Like we might get exam results or a medical report or something as an email or something. We know, oh, two days' time, it's coming. I wonder if they knew that, or did it just come as a surprise to them? God's still speaking, isn't he? And God speaks through all of us. And that's great. I wonder if God sent a letter to NCF, how it would be if God said something really strong and something encouraging. What would, what would, it, what would we feel like? I was imagining that this week, and I was thinking, well, what would it be like? And I had these few thoughts, and I thought, yeah, I'd sort of uh, talk to Paul about it, and Jill, and a few other people as well, if Jesus sent a letter to us. But I'd want to put a positive spin on it. I'd say, well, we've had a letter, letter from headquarters, and this is what it says, da-da-da-da-da. But then, literally, I heard coughing in my head, someone coughing. And do you know what it's like when you sort of watch a film, and there's two people talking, and then there's this person that comes into the room. <coughs> because these two people are talking about this person that's just come into the room. And in the way, they're being polite. They're just saying, don't talk about me anymore because I'm here. You better not say that anymore. So <coughs> they sort of that, say that sort of thing. And on Wednesday morning, just as I was sort of going to work, to school, I heard this coughing. And then I heard God say this. There is no positive spin with sin. I was thinking to myself, if I had a letter, I'd put a positive spin on it and say, yeah, this, we need to do something about it. We need to say, God is telling us about this. But God coughed and reminded me that just as I'm listening to, just as I'm sort of thinking things, so he's listening to what's going on in my head. And what I'm doing and where I'm going. And this week he coughed. <coughs> Don't forget. And he said that to me. I was thinking, yeah, I'll try and put a positive spin. But how can you put a positive spin on sin? Sin is deadly. 
sin can't be ignored. It might look exciting and alluring. Sin stinks. Sin isn't what we're after. And last week, Maggie read something out to us. And there was one word especially that Maggie read out that I haven't thought about for years. It's to do with this. It's a plumb line. And you might know that often builders or carpenters or decorators use this piece of non-metallic metal on a big piece of string because it sets what the vertical is. Because if it's sort of uh, hanging straight down, you can see where the vertical is. And last week I was reminded about God's plumb line. God coughed during the week at me and saying, you can't put a positive spin on sin. But then last Sunday, it was like God attacked me with one word and God said something sort of strong. Even though I didn't show it outwardly, I was just like, oh, God said with the word plumb line to me. And, and it was Maggie reading it from Zechariah 4 verse 10. And I was thinking, what do you measure your vertical against? Do you measure your vertical against what other people are doing? Your own life, your own traditions, your own values? Or do you measure it against what God says? In Amos 7, verses 7 to 8, it says, This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that has been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And maybe we try and have a self-appraisal. We evaluate our own ideas by what other people do. But God is challenging us, and maybe he was challenging the church in Smyrna as well, to say, Measure yourself against me. Put my plumb line against your life and see how you measure them. It's not what you were doing two years ago or five years ago, because hopefully we've all developed as disciples and Christians over that time. But what are you doing now? Perhaps God is saying, where's that plumb line now with you? On the front of the uh, newsletter this week, I've put Philippians 4, verse 8. Summon it all up, friends. I'd, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realised. Do that and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. And I love that as a musician. I love harmony, just things not being the same, but working together really well. And that's what God's calling all of us to be like. We're not going to think the same. We're not going to do the same. But God, as, he, as we sort of listen to him and put the plumb line of his desires and his want his will for our lives so our harmony is going to be wonderful because we'll be singing and living our lives 
as God intended us to. In July and August, if you were here, we were having a series on the things to pack in our lives. Things like this are great, noble, compelling, gracious. But sometimes in our lives we might pack unthankfulness or distrust, gossip or unrighteous anger. And all these things do is weigh us down. They don't help us in our lives really. There's a scripture there, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You can read that at home if you want to. These are all online, so on our website. So if you want to have a look at it there, you'd be welcome to. It talks about being changed from the inside out and quickly responding to what God's got to say to us. But what has got God got to think about NCF? What has God got to think about all of us, separately, individually, It's all to do with that plumb line, all to do with following God and saying, yes, Lord, I'm going to listen to what you're saying. And for ourselves, sometimes we think worse of ourselves than we really are. But you remember in 1 Peter, we've read it in the past, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. And I look at all of you, because it's great standing at the front, because you can look at everybody all at the same time and just whiz through and just think, wow, we look different, different heights, different colours we like to wear, different sort of uh, fashions that are good on us, different coloured hair and things. But we're all God's children. We've all been adopted by him. We're all in his family. So is it any wonder that he loves us? Jesus was comforting his church in Smyrna. But was there a little challenge? I think so. Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of the things that you are about to suffer. Here's another translation. Do not yield to fear in the face of the suffering to come. Here's another one. Fear nothing that you are about to suffer. Dismiss your dread. And your fears. He was saying to the church, wasn't he? You're suffering now. It's going to carry on. He knew about Polycarp dying several decades later. He knew all the anguish, all the anxiety, all the bad things they were going to experience. But he was saying, remember me. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I love you. I read a good uh, few chapters of a book this week and it had this quote in it by J.R. Woodward. Becoming more like Jesus is not a matter of trying, but of yielding. Setting the sails of our lives to catch the wind of the Spirit. And that really reminded me about what Jesus said. He said, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and walk with, um, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And that's a great encouragement, because we think, oh, we want to be yoked to uh, Jesus, because that's what he suggests, doesn't he, in his Gospels. 
and yoke, it sort of, it makes us, you might sort of think, oh, it's, it's going to be hemmed in again. Oh, it's not going to be good. But it's the best thing, isn't it? When we yield to God, when we say, Lord, come and stand by me. I want to follow exactly what you're saying. I want to follow exactly what you do, what you're saying to me. Another quote I read this week by Francis Chan. And he said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And so as the church in Smyrna was saying, yes, Lord, we know we're going to be suffering, but you're with us. So maybe as NCF, we could do great things and are doing great things and it's wonderful. But maybe we're going to carry on and the Lord might say to us, oh, we're going to suffer in the future. This is bad things might happen, hard things rather might happen. But as we follow God and listen to him and look to him, so we know that we are in the right place, even if things are difficult. About 900 years before uh, Pat Mars and John happened, King Jehoshaphat and the uh, southern kingdom of Judah were in a real fix because two nations were coming after them. Uh, the Ammonites and someone else, I can't remember, was, you'll remember who it is. But something important happened. They didn't rely on their military strength. They were a small nation and had a small army and these big armies were coming against them. King Jehoshaphat got it right. We have no strength to face this vast multitude that has come against us, nor do we know what to do except that our eyes are on you. And maybe in our lives now, this week, there might be tricky things coming, but the message today is to yield to God, to follow God, to look to God, and to know that even if we are suffering at times, and we all suffer at times, that God is with us, that we can say, Lord, I yield to you. I put my trust in you. I look to your plumb line to help me in my life. I want to follow you. We can lean hard into him. We can trust God. We can obey God because there's no other way to live our lives. So let's pray and then Jill's going to help us respond. Lord, we thank you that you are alive and it's not just a letter from years ago that can give us courage and help for our lives now. But Lord, we know that you speak to us even sometimes you cough just to make us come to our senses. So, Lord, we pray for all of us now that you'd help us in this week, whether it's a, 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 an easy week or a hard week. Lord, we yield to you and say, be our Lord and our Saviour, because you are the one that we look to. Amen.